today we are drawing a conclusion to our study of the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And this is a book that has a lot to say about how we deal with the brokenness and the challenges that are very prevalent in our world. Uh, we really don't have to look very far to see indications of the brokenness of this world. For instance, I think of, of terrorism and how you can have someone who can walk into a movie theater and open fire and take out the lives of dozens of people who he's never met. I think of how terrorists can fly an airplane into a, a large building and kill hundreds or even thousands of people. I think, for instance, of how natural disasters uh, can leave a wake of devastation in their path, whether they're earthquakes or, or droughts or hurricanes or tornadoes or, or anything like that. I think of how from the moment that we are born and take that first breath, the clock is ticking until that time when we take our final breath on this earth. And if we live long enough, we're going to see our bodies and maybe even our minds begin to wear down. I think of relationships with other people and how relationships, especially with friends and with family, are meant to be uplifting and encouraging and supportive. But oftentimes relationships can leave us feeling hurt or, 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 or just in pain or frustrated. There are any number of heartaches that take place in our broken world and this wasn't the way that God designed the world. In fact, he designed the world to be a place of tranquility and harmony and vitality. But then sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. And ever since then, sin has been wreaking havoc on every aspect of human life. And so we live in a world that is broken in many, many ways. And this presents a challenge for us because I don't think any of us really want to live in the broken world that we live in with, in terms of the, the heartache and the challenges that we face. But the real challenge in all this is that God doesn't necessarily offer an easy formula or a step-by-step -step process to, to get free from the challenges of this broken world. He has given us hope through Christ without a doubt. But at the same time, he has not given us that formula for if you do X, Y, and Z, then you will be able to, to live a life free of all the challenges and all the heartaches that are associated with this broken world. And so today we come to the last chapter in the book of Habakkuk. And what we're going to see as we wrap up our study of this book is a portrait of very rich, deep biblical faith. And, and this is, I think, one of the best portraits of what true faith is in all of Scripture because what we're, what we're going to see here is that faith is not some just superficial smiley face that says, well, I'll just grin and bear it and I'll get through it and I'll be good. There aren't easy answers when you look at the deep challenges that are in this broken world. And there aren't easy answers when you look to God and ask God, how are you going to handle this? Because on, on one hand, we know that God's character is steadfast. That, that he does not change. Yet on the other hand, we can never quite predict as human beings exactly how he's going to respond in various situations. Of exactly what he's going to do in this world. Because we know from scripture that, <clears throat> for instance, from Isaiah... The prophet Isaiah says that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts aren't our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and his way above ours. As we've seen throughout this book of Habakkuk, God certainly does things at times that we really don't understand or that we would never predict. And so that's all to say that there are not easy answers to how we persevere through the challenges of this life or how God is going to work in this specific circumstance or that one. But what, we, what we're going to see in Habakkuk chapter 3 is a very rich picture 
of what true biblical faith is all about. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Habakkuk 3. If, as I've said previous weeks, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, uh, use your table of contents to find it because um, it's a very small book near the end of the Old Testament. It's in a bunch of other small, in, in the mix of a bunch of other small books. And if you go thumbing through the Bible trying to find it, it'll take you quite a while. So just use your table of contents to find it, to follow along. But before we dig into chapter 3, let me give you an overview of what we've covered so far over the last couple of weeks. In Habakkuk 1, we see that Habakkuk is a prophet in Jerusalem in a region called Judea, uh, or Judah. Judah is um, it's a part of Israel. And Habakkuk was fed up with the corruption and the brokenness of the society around him. Habakkuk saw that there was tons of injustice taking place, that the government was corrupt, that the religi- religious leaders were corrupt, that everyone was turning their back on God and harming one another in the process. And Habakkuk, like I said, was fed up with that. And he would turn to God and said, God, why don't you do something about this? Why don't you fix things and make things better? God um, spoke back to Habakkuk at that point and said, okay, Habakkuk, I, I completely agree with you. Things are very problematic there in Judah. They have turned their back on me. So I have a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. You know those Babylonian people who are vicious warriors who are hungry for more and more power and more and more wealth who are devouring the nations around you? I'm going to allow those Babylonian people to come and take over Judah. Now, this was certainly not the response that Habakkuk was hoping for. He's probably hoping for something a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more comfortable, just working people's lives, just turn them back to God. But, but God was going to bring a, a Babylonian warrior type of people to take over Judah in order to try to shake Judah awake to turn back to God. Now, Habakkuk said, God, this isn't fair. We have our problems, but those people as Babylonians are a lot worse than we are. Why are you going to let them get the upper hand? Why are you going to let them seemingly win in this issue? Then God goes on in chapter 2 of Habakkuk to explain, you know what, for a while it's going to seem like they have the upper hand. But then, sometime in the future, justice is going to come on them as well. We know that just a few decades later, the Babylonians fell to the Persian Empire And a few decades after that, uh, Babylon was completely destroyed. And so God was going to bring justice, but it was not necessarily a comfortable way. But here today we come to chapter 3 to see Habakkuk's response to this conversation that's been going on between he and God. So I'm going to pray for us, then we're going to dig into Habakkuk 3. So let's pray. Father, we come to this passage today um, recognizing that we live in a broken world. That in many ways we can relate to the society that Habakkuk lived and ministered in. We have experienced the heartache in many different ways of this broken world around us. We pray that today as we open Habakkuk 3 that you will open our eyes and our hearts to Habakkuk's rich faith. To his deep trust in you even in the midst of challenging circumstances. And that as we dig into this passage that you will strengthen our faith as well. We pray that you will teach us through your word and through your spirit. And we know that these words, even though they were written 2,600 years ago, still have incredible relevance to our lives today. So please help us to not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, applying what you call us to do and believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start out just right in verse 1 of Habakkuk chapter 3, where it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shagayanath. 
So we see, first of all, that chapter 3 is, is a prayer. But it's not a prayer as we typically think of a prayer. It's more of a prayer that is sung. It's a song. Habakkuk 3 is a song. Let me give you four reasons why I know that Habakkuk 3 is a song. First of all, we have the strange word in verse 1, Shagayanath. This is the word that um, most of us have probably never heard before. It only occurs a couple places in Scripture. The only other place it occurs in Scripture besides here is in the Psalms. And it refers to some sort of, of type of song, like a lament type of song. And also we have another musical term that occurs several times in this passage, the word sella. Um, some of us may have heard of a musical group that uses that term. They call themselves sela. Um, the, the more accurate biblical or Hebrew pronunciation is most likely sela. The only other place that that term occurs is also in the Psalms. And the Psalms is, was Israel's ancient songbook. And so these two are musical terms that are used here in Habakkuk. But also you look at the form of Habakkuk 3. It's a, it has a poetic form, not in terms of rhymes. Uh, it's not that type of poem. But as you look at the terminology and the way it's presented, it's very poetic, which lends itself to music. And finally, the, most, the, the strongest, uh, strongest indication that this is a song is when you look at the last verse, verse 19. It says, For the director of music on my stringed instruments. And so Habakkuk 3 is a song that Habakkuk is singing. And it's so interesting that here at the end of the first two chapters, uh, Habakkuk's been wrestling with God. He's been saying, God, this isn't fair. God, I don't like what's going on here. Why are you doing this? And then Habakkuk breaks out in song. And I mean, I think we may wonder, okay, what's going on here? Is this some sort of musical where some, all of a sudden out of the blue, someone can just start singing? Well, it's not quite that way, but we do need to understand the context in which Habakkuk lived and ministered. He was in ancient Israel. They, they spoke Hebrew. Hebrew is a very, very poetic language. And their form of worship incorporated music and songs in practically every sort of life circumstance. If you were happy, you sang songs of praise. If you were sad, you, song sang, you sang songs of lament. If you were convicted about something, you sang a song. If God revealed something new to you, you sang a song. You look throughout Scripture, even look at the birth accounts of Jesus in Luke 1 and 2, you see several songs that were sung. This is very standard practice in ancient Israel. And Habakkuk is following that as well. He's been wrestling with God a lot through this book. And then he sings a song at the end to, to talk about this, this new faith, this deeper, richer faith that he is developing in God. <clears throat> Verse 2 of Habakkuk 3 contains the beginning and really the main point of this whole song. Verse 2 says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so we see Habakkuk saying, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I, I stand in awe of the things you've done. And what he's referring to is that through his reading of Scripture and through hearing Scripture taught, he has heard a lot of amazing things that God has done in the past. And he wants God to do those things again now. He says, renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. He's reflecting on a society, how society is very broken, it's very corrupt. People have turned their back on God. He's saying, God, you did great things then to turn people to yourself, to convict people of, of their sin to save people from destruction, which I know is coming upon us. God, will you please do those same things now? Renew them 
in our day. I think that many times if we read scripture reflectively or with any sort of sincerity and thinking about what's going on, we may have a similar mentality. We read about miracles that are done in the past. We think, God, it would be so cool to see you do another miracle now. It would be so cool to see someone walk in water or to see Jesus take five loaves and two fish and multiply them to feed 5,000 people. It would be so cool to see, see you come along and, and part a body of water in two so that we could walk through on dry ground. That would be so amazing, God. And we read about those things in the past and we think, God, why don't you do those things again now? I think that would be really nice. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is asking here. He's facing a very difficult circumstance in his society and he knows what God said is going to happen. The Babylonians are going to come in and defeat them. He says, God, will you please come to the rescue? Please do something amazing like you did in the past. And then, then he goes on to the, really the core of the song. I'm going to read from verses 3 to 15, which contains, like I said, the, the central part of the song that Habakkuk is singing. It says that God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Okay, so this is the meat of the song, but you may be thinking, okay, I hear it, but I don't understand anything about what it's saying. Well, let me try to shed a little bit of light on it. What Habakkuk is talking about here, he's, refer he's referring back to one of the most significant incidents in the history of Israel. It's really where Israel gets their, their identity as a nation is from what's known as the Exodus. He's reflecting on God's glory as it was revealed in the Exodus. The Exodus was when Israel was in captivity and slavery in Egypt for many, many years. And God called Israel to leave Egypt and to go into the promised land. And that was the Exodus. And, and the song describes the things, the mighty acts that God did in order to free Israel during the Exodus. And one of the ways that we know this is about the Exodus is from the very beginning in verse 3. It says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now for us, we probably have no idea what that's referring to. But people back in Habakkuk's day would have immediately thought about the Exodus in that time because Teman was a town that was a little bit south of, of current-day Israel. 
And then Paran was an area, specifically an area of wilderness and mountains that was on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula. And specifically within the Paran Mountains was Mount Sinai itself. Mount Sinai was where God appeared to the Israelites after they came out of Egypt and God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament law. It was a very sacred place. And, and that's the area uh, that, that Israelites would automatically think of when they were thinking of the Exodus. Because that's where God came and met with them and deeply established them as a nation, as his very own people and representatives on this earth. And as we go through this uh, the song that, that Habakkuk is singing here, we see multiple references to God's glory in the Exodus. For instance, very, right after he talks about Teman and Paran, he talks about God's giving of the law. He says, God's glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Now you may be wondering, okay, what connection does that have with the giving of the law? Remember, he's already been referring to the place Mount Sinai where the law was given. I want to read you a portion of Exodus 19 specifically beginning in verse 16, that talks about when Moses met with God at Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and the law. And you'll hear references to God's splendor and his glory. They're very similar to Habakkuk's song in Habakkuk 3. So Exodus 19, uh, it says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So you see there's this picture back in Exodus 19 of God's glory in a very visible way, in splendor and majesty and fire and smoke. That's the same thing, that, that, that same splendor is what Habakkuk is referring to here in verses 3 and 4 in terms of the giving of the law. Habakkuk is also recalling the plagues. He says in verse 5, Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. God used ten supernatural plagues in order to soften Pharaoh's heart and to convince Pharaoh of Egypt to release Israel to go out into the desert and then into the promised land. What Habakkuk is doing through the song is remembering the amazing things that God did back then and trying to, trying to say, God, will you please do that again today? He goes on to talk about uh, how God intimidated the other nations as he led Israel out of Egypt. He says, uh, I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. What this is referring to is that word got around very quickly that, that Israel is suddenly becoming a, a very powerful nation, not because of who they are in and of themselves. They've, they've been slaves. But they're becoming very powerful because God is working and fighting through them. And we see multiple accounts of how as Israel would be marching through the desert, the nations and the tribes that they were passing trembled in fear because they were worried that God was going to work through Israel to defeat them as well. So Habakkuk's recalling the intimidation of the nations. And also, he recalls next the parting of the Red Sea. It says in verse 8, Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? 
I mean, you hear some figurative language there, but what he's referring to here is he's giving some rhetorical questions. And he's saying, no, God, of course you weren't angry with the water when you parted the water. No, you were angry with the Egyptian army who was pursuing your people, the Israelites. Because God parted the Red Sea so that the, the million or so Israelites could flee from the, the pursuing Egyptian army. And as soon as the Israelites got through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was down in the middle of the Red Sea where it had been parted, God allowed the water to, to come back in and to crush the Israelite army. As we move on through this song, we see that, that Habakkuk is thinking back to the victorious battles that God won on Israel's behalf. The sun and moon stood still in verse 11. They stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. He talks about how God came out to deliver his people. Now what this is referring to specifically in, in terms of the sun and moon standing still is most likely a battle that God was fighting through Joshua right as they were entering the promised land. <clears throat> Back in Joshua chapter 10, uh, we see it's a one-time occurrence. I don't think it's ever occurred any other time in human history. But God made the sun stand still for one day in order to enable the Israelites to defeat their enemies. We see in Joshua chapter 10 beginning in verse 12, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. And a little bit later it says, Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. See, God, over and over and over, he would fight on behalf of Israel in order to secure their freedom, in order to overcome the enemies who are trying to oppress or defeat Israel. And Habakkuk is recalling that. And finally in this passage, we see reference to the destruction of Pharaoh's army, how, how, how he brought the, God brought the water back over Israel to defeat the wicked ruler Pharaoh, or back, I'm sorry, brought the water over Egypt to defeat Pharaoh and his army in order to bring freedom to God's people. And so Habakkuk is sitting here just thinking back to these amazing things that God has done in the past. And on his mind, he's thinking, God, will you please do that same thing today? I know that you need to bring wrath upon your people because they have sinned. But back in verse 2, God, in the midst of your wrath, please, please remember mercy. Will you please do something amazing to save your people from this coming calamity? I think what he's thinking here is, God, in those times in the past when you've shown up in glory, people have trembled in your presence. Kings have bowed down. Armies have bowed down. Nations have bowed down. No one can stand in the glory of your presence. And, and Habakkuk is saying, God, will you please do that same thing again now? Because we're in a terrible situation here. Back when I was in elementary school, one of my favorite parts of school was show and tell. Um, I think I had some other favorite parts too, uh, especially recess and lunch. Um, I think I liked the classes as well, but show and tell was always very special. Because in show and tell, you get to bring something very special from home. Whether it be a toy, or, or something that relates to a hobby, or just something else that's been very special to you. And you get to take it in, 
And, and for a while, it sets off on the side of the room, probably in a backpack or something. And at least when I had show and tell and I brought something in that day, I would constantly be thinking about that special thing over there in the backpack, excited to bring it out to show people. And then the time comes, you get to bring it out, you get to show it, you get to tell all about why this thing is so special to you. And, and you're hoping that other people think it's special as well. But I think what Habakkuk is doing here is kind of, he wants to do a sort of show and tell. He wants God to show up and, and to be very evident in his glory to everyone around him. And I think we really want the same thing oftentimes. If you're talking with someone who is questioning God's faithfulness or is even doubting the existence of God, I think there's a part of us that kind of wishes that God would show up and do something amazing, would, would do something that would cause people to have to believe in him beyond a shadow of a doubt. But we know that more often than not, God chooses not to work in that way. But that's what Habakkuk is asking for here. He's asking God, will you please show up in some way, some powerful way, to turn your people back to yourself and to save us from the coming destruction from Babylon? Now what happens next in verse 16, I liken the kind of waking up from a daydream. Um, you know what a daydream is like. You're sitting in school or you're sitting at work or you're sitting on your couch at home and you're just thinking about something really nice. Maybe a vacation that's coming up or just even what you're going to do on the weekend or, or something that you're hoping for for your future or, or just something you think would be really cool. It's a fantasy that you know you'll never do like own some absolutely amazing car or, or something else. You're in your daydream and you really like it but then all of a sudden something snaps you out of that daydream and then you're back in reality. And you kind of wish, oh, I wish I could go back to that daydream. Well, I think that's kind of what happened to Habakkuk between verses 15 and 16. He's been thinking back to what God has done in the past, and he's hoping, God, will you please do something? And all of a sudden, he snaps back to the reality of what's going on around him. We see in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on, us, on the nation invading us. You see that Habakkuk is expressing a fear, a trepidation, an anxiety, an uncertainty about the future. He says, my heart pounded. I quivered. I trembled. I mean, think about if you've ever been in a doctor's office awaiting the results of a biopsy. And you aren't sure what's going to happen. And you have those times where you're just kind of trembling. You're kind of uncertain. You're kind of scared of what's going to come next. Or when you have a big job interview coming up and you're being called into the office to start the interview. Or, or when you have to give a speech in front of some important people and you're kind of intimidated by that speech, your heart starts beating like crazy. That's, that's a picture of what Habakkuk is, is feeling here. But it's not because of something exciting. It's because of he recognizes what's going to happen in the future that things are going to get really bad in Judah as Babylon comes in. But he does remember that calamity will come upon Babylon at some point, but he still has to wait for that time. Now what's, happen what's been happening here, though, is that Habakkuk has been wrestling with God. He he's scared. He doesn't like what's going to happen. But he's been wrestling with God. We know that Habakkuk was written somewhere around 600 B.C., but we don't really know the exact length of time that it took Habakkuk to have these conversations with God and then to write this book down. But we know that, God, or that Habakkuk has been wrestling with God, doing business with him, trying to wrestle with God. What are you doing here? And out of all that wrestling came a very deep and rich faith in God. It doesn't have simplistic answers, 
But after all that wrestling, Habakkuk is able to trust God very deeply. We see that in verses 17 through 19, which close out the book. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So Habakkuk says, I will rejoice. Now, we may hear that and wonder, Habakkuk, what in the world do you have to rejoice about? Your circumstances definitely aren't good. Well, he's rejoicing in the Lord. And this is not some sort of superficial faith that says, well, God's good all the time and all the times God, God is good, so I'm going to put on a smiley face just because I know I should. Did not mean for that to rhyme, but it did, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> but, that, I mean, it's not some sort of superficial faith that just puts on a smiley face just because, you know, hey, I should be happy because I'm a Christian, or I'm, I should be happy because I'm following God. It's a faith that looks straight, squarely in the eyes of the problems and says, you know what, even because of those problems, or do, even in spite of those problems, I'm still going to trust in God. Not many of us are farmers here, but we can probably um, picture the analogy that, that Habakkuk's drawing out here. A farmer, if a farmer does not have figs that are budding, and if a farmer has no grapes on his vine, if a farmer has no crop, if a farmer has no food, if a farmer has no sheep or, or no cattle, that farmer is in pretty bad shape, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, that farmer may even begin to starve pretty soon unless he has some other means of securing these necessary items for life. But Habakkuk says, even if that were the case, yet still I would rejoice in the Lord. And the reason why this is not a superficial faith, the reason why he can rejoice is in verse 19, that he recognizes that the sovereign Lord is his strength. The the idea of the sovereign Lord means that God is in control, that everything is in his hand, that nothing is outside of, of what he wants to have happen. And that even if there are challenges in our lives, they are there because God allows them to come in and he has a purpose for them. Now Habakkuk definitely recognizes this is not going to be fun. He knows this as Babylon comes in, there's going to be bloodshed, that a lot of people are going to die, that even Habakkuk himself may die. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. But he can still say, I will rejoice in the Lord because I can trust him even when circumstances are bleak. And so for us, we look at our circumstances, and we all face different challenges. I know just from from knowing you all that that we all face various challenges. Some are big right now, some are smaller, some are a little bit more in the past, some are are present or even coming up, and we're uncertain about various things in our future. But in all the things that we face, it's an opportunity to say, you know what? Even though circumstances are hard, or even though they're out of my control, yet still I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though on my wedding day I made vows to my husband or my wife and they are now uh, abandoning those vows, yet still I will, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though we raised our kids to honor God and to make wise decisions and some reason now they're going off the deep end and going in a direction that's not healthy for them, yet still I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though we have prayed for physical healing for this person for a long time and it just seems like their health is going downhill more and more, yet still I will rejoice in the Lord. 
Even though I've tried to make good decisions with my finances, I haven't purchased a house that's more than, than I could afford, even though I haven't purchased some extravagant vehicle or, or other things, yet even still, my, my, I'm struggling to make ends meet. I'm not sure how we're going to pay the bills, yet still, I will rejoice in the Lord. That's what this rich biblical faith is about. It says that regardless of the circumstances, because I can trust that God is at work and he's in control, I can still rejoice in him and trust in him. And that is how Habakkuk ends this book. He's gone through the ringer. He's gone through a lot of challenging times. He's wrestled with God. He's developed a rugged faith. And he can trust in God. So for us, how can we apply this to our lives as we close out this book in this series? I want to give you three different uh, things that we can do. They're going to be familiar if you've heard the other two uh, messages from this book. But I don't think it's a bad thing for familiarity to come again and again because that will help it sink into us. So one of the things we can do to develop this rugged, rich, deep biblical faith that Habakkuk had is to utilize lament. Lament is simply pouring out our heart to God, saying, God, I don't like these circumstances. I'm frustrated now. I'm discouraged. I don't know why this is happening. I want this to be different. It's just pouring out our emotions to God. There's an acronym that's oftentimes very helpful when talking about prayer. It's the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. It describes four different types of prayer. You have A for adoration, which is adoring and praising God. You have C for confession, which is confessing sins to God. You have T for thanksgiving, which is thanking God for the good things that he's done for us. You have S, which stands for supplication, which is praying that God will do certain things. But I think there's a letter missing from the acronym. I don't know what I'd make it spell, but I think the letter L needs to be in there as well for lament. Because those other four categories of prayer are very, very important. But if we don't have lament as part of our prayer lives, we are doing a disservice to the challenges that we face in our lives. Because again, again, lament takes those frustrations and discouragements and, and doubts and questions that we all have from time to time, and it takes them to God. Without lament, we end up locking those things away. Or maybe we talk with other people about them, and we stew about them internally. But without lament, we aren't really taking them to God. God wants us to take those things to Him. It's, it maintains a healthy relationship with Him if we take those frustrations and discouragements to God in the form of lament. But there is an amazing outcome if we do lament well. The reason I know this is through the book of Psalms. The most common type of psalm is a lament psalm. Somewhere between one-third and one-half of all the psalms are lament psalms. Do you know that every one of those psalms, except for one, ends with praise and declarations of trust in God? Psalm 88 is the only lament psalm that is lamenting to God and does not end with praise. But every other one ends with a declaration of, I trust you, God, and I'm going to praise you even amidst the storm that I'm facing. And Habakkuk ends the same way. He's been wrestling with God. He's been lamenting. But at the end, he's able to trust and praise God. I found that one of the best ways to lament is to write out prayers. I mean, I, I like writing out prayers in general. If you know, if you've been around here much, you've heard about how I like to write out my prayers in a prayer journal. But I found especially for lamenting, just being able to get things down on paper, to process through them, to lay them out before God is such a healthy thing that keeps us connected with God 
amidst circumstances that may otherwise harden our heart towards him. So we need to utilize lament. We also need to surrender to God's plans. Habakkuk shows very clearly that God's plans are not always the same as ours. But he is still sovereign and he's still good. And therefore, we need to surrender to him. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise to us. I mean, Jesus' core description of what it means to be a, a Christian includes surrendering to God. Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's an act of surrender, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And so if we really want to develop this deep, rugged faith, we need to surrender wholeheartedly to God. Now, it's interesting how a lot of the things that we want in this life are contradictory to surrendering to God. I, I think of our Declaration of Independence as a country. It says that we have the inalienable right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think that pursuit of happiness, if that becomes our highest goal, that is contradictory many times to surrendering to God. Because if our, if our pursuit of our happiness and our satisfaction and our sense of success is our highest goal, what that means is that when we are not as successful uh, materially or vocationally or relationally as we want, then we're going to be frustrated and it's going to be really hard for us to praise God. But if we recognize that God's highest goal is not our earthly success, but his highest goal is that we will draw close to him, then we will recognize that everything that happens, even the trials and the challenges, are all blessings from him to help draw us closer and closer to him. And so by surrendering to God, we develop this rugged faith that helps us to trust him even in the midst of storms. And finally, we just need to cling to God. We talked about that last week. We're talking about it again this week. You look at Habakkuk, how much he clung to God even when circumstances were discouraging and challenging. And in that Hebrew language, names and the meaning of names was incredibly significant. Do you know what the meaning of Habakkuk's name was? Embrace. Habakkuk's name meant embrace. And specifically, most scholars think it was a reference to how he embraced God and he refused to let go of God no matter what was going on in his life. And so for us, as we're going through the tri- trials and the challenges and the brokenness of life, we need to remember, cling to God, lament well, surrender to God, and then we too will be able to develop this rugged type of faith that doesn't minimize the challenges. The challenges won't go away, but will enable us to cling to God in the midst of whatever we are facing. And in the end, come out with a very rich faith. I want to close with a passage out of Isaiah 40, uh, which talks about clinging to God in the midst of challenges. It's a very, uh, very well-known passage, Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In this life, we all face challenges. We all face things that are going to discourage us or wear us down. But Isaiah says, just as Habakkuk says, that if we can trust in the Lord and depend on him, he will renew our strength and carry us through. My prayer, and I believe it's Habakkuk's prayer for us as well, is that whatever we are facing, that we will cling to God and develop this rich, deep, rugged faith in him. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you that you are a faithful and trustworthy God, that you're a sovereign God, that we can trust that no matter what is going on in our lives, that you have a purpose for it. We know we don't like that all the time. We know that there are a lot of things that don't make sense. But we pray that you will use even the deepest valleys and the the most significant of challenges to refine our faith, to make it rich and deep and rugged, Lord, to enable us to cling to you through everything that comes our way. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that through Jesus and his death on the cross, we have assurance that you do love us. That no, no matter what we face in this life, that we don't have to worry about whether or not you care for us because you've already taken care of our biggest problem, which is our sin problem that was deserving of wrath. And instead of wrath, you chose to give us mercy through the cross. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that you will help us to live lives that are fully dedicated to you, that are surrendered, that do lament well when we face challenges, but that ultimately cling to you and embrace you through the ups and the downs. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. May we be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.